I'll invite you to turn in whatever form you have your Bible to 1 John 1, 1 through 4. This is part two of what we began last week, because Christ was born. And the kind of the rest of the story is because Christ was born, it transforms us so that we can enjoy his joy even when things get bleak. We looked last week about how the doctrine of Christmas, the truth of the Christmas experience, is candidly doctrinal. We have nothing to hide, those of us who believe that these events took place. And so we're candid about it. We're frank. And we say, yes, we believe these things actually did happen. These are truths that were recorded by eyewitnesses that were given to us so that we can understand God more clearly. And it's a kind of a doctrine that we're willing to commit ourselves to. And that we're willing to even defend. We will contend for the faith that we have because of our candid doctrine around Christmas. We also talked about how everybody is doctrinal, not just Christians. And some people might not be honest about it. They might either deny that they are doctrinal or they may not be aware of it. And so they may just sort of push it away. And yet we saw how everybody has a belief in something and they're betting their life on whatever that something is. And many are betting their eternal destiny on whatever it is that they believe in. So I opened last Sunday's message with a silly little story about something that Joy and I saw for the first time several years ago in Arizona that I didn't even know existed until we saw it with our own eyes and experienced it. We heard it. We touched it. It's a little fur. That was that silly little thing that we thought might have been a flying hamster. But it was actually a sugar glider, a little marsupial, cute little thing. And it can fly up to a half of a length of a football field, not really fly, but glide, if it gets up high enough in a tree and then just catches the wind with that skin that's so thin that it spreads out and becomes like a wing. I saw it. Now, if you had told me about that prior to that time, I might have thought, come on, are you making this up? But because I saw it with my own eyes, I can attest to the fact I've witnessed that happen. And so I become a witness to the truth with my own eyes. And that's exactly how some people felt about Jesus. Not that he was a flying hamster. But that they couldn't believe that Messiah had actually come. That this person that claims to be God incarnate was real among them. They, that's just beyond their comprehension. They say, no, nah, that doesn't make any sense. It's not even logical. How could that be? But... Today we're going to look at how the gospel of Christmas is actually confidently historical. Because in the text that we're still studying, we're going to look at it again, 1 John 1, 1 through 4, John is telling us essentially, hey, I have seen this person, the one who is life. I've seen him with my own eyes. I've heard him. I've watched him do the healings. I'm telling you, I'm a witness to that fact. We who were with him have seen these things. So let me read that passage again. It's good for us to hear John's own words about that. It's a brief passage. I'm reading from the NLT, New Living Translation, 1 John 1, 1 through 4. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. Doesn't point people to eternal life. He is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. 
We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this word and illuminate it for us. John is telling us, in essence, hey, when we give you these firsthand accounts of Jesus walking on the water, healing people who are let down through the roof of a house because there's so many people there, casting out demons, throwing some of them into pigs that run down a hillside, rising from the dead, all these things, they're not fables. We couldn't make this stuff up. We're telling you what we've actually witnessed. They are not legends. These are things we've actually seen. We've experienced them. We've heard the gasps from the crowds as Jesus has performed miracle after miracle. We're passing on these true stories with confidence because we have seen, we have heard, we have touched the one who is life itself. We are giving you the evidence. And because of his repetition and the way John words that, you can almost hear that passion even in this little passage that I just read for you. So that means that the doctrine of Christmas, which we started looking at last week, is that God became historical. Not only are we doctrinal or truthful about our belief around it, but it became confidently historical. All the stuff that we read about in the New Testament, the manger, the angels, the crucifixion, the trip to Bethlehem, all that stuff, the burial, the resurrection, the appearance to witnesses, it's all true. It's fact. It happened in history, and that's why John 1, 1 through 4 is so important for us. And of course, we understand that this God-became-man story just goes against a whole lot of people and their common sense. They just scoff at it. They can't imagine. They'll say, oh, yeah, well, these are wonderful kids' stories. We've got a couple of nice little illustrated kids' books, and it's good. It's good for the kids, and it's nice in Christmas for us to think about these romantic, kind of nostalgic things. But they're just parables. You know, this is just analogy for us. And the good thing is that we can extract whatever meaning we want to from these parables. And that's great. We love it. And these things didn't really happen, though. They're just legends. And some will go so far as to say anybody with half a brain should be able to see that. Well, legends weren't written like this, like the New Testament. They just weren't. They weren't written by that, like that. Christmas forces us to choose, basically. And I'm glad it happens every year. <laughs> because it doesn't just happen one time and then we're done with it. It keeps coming up to remind us that we have to make a choice. Christmas pushes us to choose between two options. Either the birth of Christ really happened, or it didn't. And we have to choose. What do we believe about that? Our passage from 1 John helps push us to decide. He doesn't let us off the hook. He's saying basically, hey, these events that we're proclaiming to you, they're either lies or they're the truth. But they can't be both, and they can't be legends, because that would be made up. So how do we know they're not legends? Well, for one thing, there's a whole lot of scholars who have studied ancient literature and the style of literature, and they would say, you know, the kind of stuff that's written in these firsthand accounts don't match legend writing historical style in ancient literature. Now, that's not the way they were written. Now, today, a lot of people 
might say, oh, we're going to make something sound true when it's not by putting in lots of detail that make it sound like somebody was really there. That's not the way they did it back then. But, for example, the story of Jesus walking on the water in Mark 6 and also John 6, it provides details that are historical in style, not legendary. This is going to start to make sense. Just nod your head and say, I'm, I'm tracking with you, Pastor. We're, we're trusting you to get to the point. It's going to make sense. So they, it, it's historical in style, not legendary. John's account says they had rowed three or four, maybe three and a half miles, out into the lake when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water going toward the boat. Okay, that's a historic sounding kind of thing. Three or four miles would be about halfway out through the Sea of Galilee. Now, not too many of us here, if you are, raise your hand if you're an expert in ancient literature. I didn't think so. So I, I'm not either, but I had to take a couple of classes in literature when I was in college. And they made us read stuff like from Homer, you know, the Iliad, the Odyssey. So you might be at least familiar a little bit with some of the storylines from a couple of those things. Well, if you're reading in the Iliad, you might be familiar with the fact that in Greek mythology, which is legend, it's fueling the imagination. But you can't really imagine Homer writing, and Achilles approached Hector to engage him in combat. And they were eh, about three, maybe four miles from the wall of Troy. He doesn't write it that way. How come? Because that's the legendary style is that it's going to be made almost like made for TV movie or something. It's going to be accurate. It's going to be clear. It's going to be crisp. And the stuff that we see in the New Testament doesn't come across that way. There are all these weird, seemingly odd details that are thrown in. Why? Because that's how people report real events. If you've heard somebody that witnessed an accident, they'll throw in things that don't make sense because they're trying to process it and they're just putting it out there. And this guy who's wearing a red sweater, as I recall, and then they just keep putting stuff. We see that. We see hundreds of things like that in the New Testament. So historically and in the ancient literary style, it doesn't match legend writing from the ancients. It's written as though it really is eyewitness stuff. So a lot of ancient literary professors would say, yeah, we have to give credence to the fact that these people at least, sometimes we'll push them a little bit, and they'll say, well, at least they believe that they had actually seen these things. They may not say that they themselves actually accept that what they said is real, but they believe that they must have felt like that this was real, and so they actually believe that. Well, John says, I saw him. I felt him. I've had conversations with this guy. I've watched people completely be changed and transformed after they were in the presence of this man. This is no ordinary man. This is not a legend. I'm telling you, this guy is real. And that's why 1 John 1, 1 through 4, I think, is pivotal in the New Testament. And it shows us something that we probably need to be paying attention to. So... We who read the New Testament have to decide whether or not these accounts were fabricated or true accounts provided by eyewitnesses. This is credible evidence, I believe, that shows us that they could not be legends. Okay, how about within witnesses' lifetimes? I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to camp out on this for just a couple of moments because I think it's vital. In the accounts of the New Testament, including all this stuff about the birth of Christ... If they were lies, then they've got to be some of the, excuse my language, stupidest lies, the most ridiculous lies that anybody would have put out then because the New Testament was not written 100 or 200 years after the fact. It was written very close to the original time of these things so that 
Even Paul says, there were many eyewitnesses still alive at the time he was writing some of the things he was writing. Why would you do that? Knowing that people would dispute what you've written. You wouldn't want to do that. So if Jesus, for example, said, you know, uh, or if John was saying, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people in the Kidron Valley, right outside that very busy Jerusalem and that huge wall where there are all these eyewitnesses. He appeared to them after he had been clearly dead and in the tomb, and then he rose again. Why would you want to go and do something like putting out a lie about that just 30 or 40 or 50 years after the fact when you know there's still people who would dispute that? Because if they did dispute it, then all of a sudden this thing that started to gain traction, this movement called Christianity, based on the fact that people actually saw the risen Christ, it would fizzle out and it wouldn't last the test of time. Christianity is still here because Jesus is alive. And I believe that. And I believe it based on credible evidence of eyewitnesses. So what's the point? What's the point of Christmas anyway? The point of Christmas is this. Jesus Christ really lived, and he really died. It happened. It took place in history, and he did these things in front of witnesses. He said these things. He spoke to people. He touched people. Christ is real. Now, I know that I hammer this point down a lot, especially at this time of year. And some might think, okay, aren't you being just a little dogmatic with this Jesus is real stuff? Can't you get away from that for a while? In a word, no. I'm presenting truth based on evidence. And there's a difference between being candidly doctrinal and being doctrinaire. There's that word doctrinaire that if you look it up, the etymology, that's people who are unyielding and unbending about something, even though there may not be credible evidence for what they say that you need to believe in. That's being doctrinaire. I'm not being doctrinaire. I'm being doctrinal. Because I do believe that I can build a faith system, a belief in something that has credible evidence, and so I've embraced it. I'm leaning into it. I've leaned the full weight of my trust in Jesus Christ because I absolutely believe he's real. And he died, and he rose again, and he conquered death, and he paid for my sin. I believe that. Now, there are a lot of people today, they will say, well, I, I resonate with some of Christ's teachings. There's some good stuff in there. I really appreciate the Sermon on the Mount. I really like that one. And it's good that you can draw these things out that you want to be able to apply to your own life. And so if you've come up with that conclusion, that's good for you. I have come to a different conclusion about what I interpret this means to me. They're good things. I like those things. But it doesn't really matter if they happened or not. They're just stories. Doctrine doesn't matter. What matters is that you're just a good person. Now, can you see the irony, if you're thinking logically, about that statement? The statement itself, all that matters is being good, is in fact a doctrine. That's a statement of belief. So most people who claim that just being good is all that matters are not being candid about the fact that it is a doctrine. I got that from Tim Keller because he's such a good person with this apologetic stuff. So thanks, Tim, for that. I appreciate that. Now, if you felt the need to put a label on that doctrine that people would say all that matters is just being good, you could call it the doctrine of justification by works, which is what a lot of theologians have done, as opposed to what we see in the Bible, which is justification by grace. It's all by God's grace. Now, last week, we met Alex and Bob. You remember those? And we saw how Bob actually made a doctrinal statement, even though he denied that he was being doctrinal. 
And he said that doctrine doesn't matter. And when he said that, he was saying all that matters is that we just live a good life. And he's also saying, I'm not so bad that I need a Savior. Now, there are a lot of people who even today don't even believe that there is an afterlife of any kind. That's really prevalent. I mean, a lot of people. And that means that they don't need to worry about eternal consequences for things that deserve consequences. They don't think there will be any final judgment. No heaven, no hell. They like John Lennon's song, Imagine All the People. That's when this began creeping into America's psyche because of John Lennon and that song, by the way. So they're willing to bet their lives and their, their eternal destiny on the belief that when I die, I die. I'm worm food. That's it. I will have no conscious thought, and so I won't be in any pain anymore. So what I've got, I've got to make the best out of this life because this is all there is. And that's what an awful lot of people believe today. And I can't help but ask, and I have to. And I don't mean to be cruel by it, but I'm just having to ask. But what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong? What if you wake up one day and you realize, oh, oh, man. John was right in 1 John 1, 1 through 4. And the doctrine of Christmas was right. And all that stuff that these preachers have been pounding the pulpit over were right. I think I may have made a mistake. I think I need to make a different decision, and it's going to be too late. So here's the gospel in a nutshell. Here's why it's so important, especially at this time of year, why it needs to be explained over and over again. The gospel is not, and this is what people try to make it. They try to impose this on the gospel. They try to say that the gospel is, well, God came to earth through Christ to show us that we need to be good. We need to be a better person. And then if I just live a good life, then somehow God owes me a reward. They keep trying to bring it back to justification by works. And that's not what the Bible is teaching, and that's not what the gospel is. So here's why the doctrine of Christmas matters. If these events didn't happen, these events that we celebrate at this time of year, every year, if they are just parables, if they're just kids' stories, then we cannot be saved purely by God's grace. If these things didn't happen, and if you believe that we just need to be good people, then you're saying that you believe the doctrine of salvation by works, that if you try hard enough, God will accept you. Can you see why we cannot avoid doctrine? We both have doctrine. Some are just more open about it than others. Fortunately for us, we have abundant evidence. It's confidently historical. It's not just me. I've read a whole bunch of books from people who are a whole lot smarter than I am. And people who have tried, like Lee Strobel, to get rid of it and to prove it all wrong. And it seems like every person who's tried to do that keeps finding that they can't prove it wrong. And so they just finally cave in and they say, I'm just going to believe it. And so in addition to that, and this is where it really becomes cool. We get to lean into this final point. In addition to being confidently historical, the birth of Jesus is also profoundly personal. Profoundly personal. Look at verses 3 and 4. They tell us that if we really get this concept, that these events are real and not just a fable in a stable, if we grasp the truth about Jesus coming to earth, God becoming flesh, living a life we should have lived, dying the death we should have died, then God becomes not just a good person or an interesting teacher. He becomes Savior. 
And he becomes a Savior that deserves to be our Lord because of what he did on our behalf. It becomes personal. Here's an example of how we can trust that Emmanuel, God with us, is really personal. There are two scholars. This is a good illustration. Two scholars. One is named Alex and the other is named Bob. They have come in so handy this last couple of weeks. They're both doing a project. They're both writing a biography of a man named Brady Brady. Because that's a first and a last name. And this Brady guy lived in Northern Ireland in the 19th century. Now, this is just a made-up fictitious story to show you that there's a difference between fictitious made-up stories and eyewitness accounts. All right. Both Alex and Bob are relying on a handful of letters that Brady Brady had written to his wife during his lifetime. And both these writers have agreed that they can gain some insight from these letters. They're helpful. But then another scholar shows up and he says, Oh, guess what we've discovered? In a basement archive, there's an autobiography written in Brady Brady's own hand. And Alex inspects the document. She applies all the literary skills she has amassed to say if, if it really cuts the mustard or not. And she goes, yes, I believe this to be true. I think this is an authentic autobiography written by Brady in his own hand. I'm going to use that as a part of what helps me write my, auto, my biography of him, his autobiography. But Bob says, nah, because Bob is Bob. And Bob says, I disagree with you, Alex. I don't think there's enough here to show me beyond a reasonable doubt that this is authentic. I'm choosing not to believe that Brady Brady wrote this autobiography, and I'm throwing it out as one of my sources. So you can imagine that these two, auto, or these two biographies wind up being very different books, right? One is about this guy who's a historic figure, but he's kind of aloof, and there are some things that are references that are all third party and... It's just not very personal at all. So you have some idea of this guy, but it's at arm's length. And you don't really know the man. You know something about the man, Brady Brady, but you don't know the man. But the other one, Alex's, you get to the end of that book and you go, man, it feels like I've had coffee with Brady Brady. This guy came alive to me. He feels so real to me. Why is that? What made the difference? One believed the autobiography to be true, and the other didn't. You see where this is pointing? to 1 John 1, 1 through 4. And all the credible things we have corroborated with each other in the New Testament. That's why 1 John 1, 1 through 4 to me is so important. When he says, we've seen him. We've touched him. We've heard him. We've witnessed all the things we're putting into our biography. And that's what we have in the four Gospels. It's a biography of Christ. Then if we believe John and we say, yep, I think he's telling it right. All these details that pop up that sound like they were written by people who are actually there makes sense. It's credible. So yes, I'm buying into the autobiography, which means that we get to really know this guy. We get to see his heart as we read the biography of Jesus in the four Gospels. And that is why Christmas matters. It's so much more than just legend. This is a real God who's showing us his great big heart. And here's another mind-blowing concept. Look to me with your eyeballs. <laughs> you need to get this one because this is so vital and it's great. It's based on this analogy of a biography. If Jesus is who he says he is, and I wholeheartedly believe that he is, based on the evidence, then he actually, Jesus actually becomes 
You ready? The autobiography of God. The Word becomes flesh. We can read Him. Now we can understand Him. He's put Himself into our language, and we don't need an interpreter anymore. Isn't that mind-blowing? That freaks me out in a good way. And it makes me think, yes, that's why my heart resonates with his heart because it's beating at the same rate. And he just connects us and my spirit says, yes, yes, God, I get it. Yes, I realize what you've done for me. And I want so much for other people to get that because I ache that they feel so aloof and so lost. And they need a personal savior like you. Reveal it to them so that they can know it as well. Christmas is not speculative ideology. It's truth about a living God. Let's pray. Father, I really get worked up over this stuff because I see that the consequences are so real for those who don't accept the truth of all that you've done. You've gone to great lengths to show us yourself, including revealing yourself through the written word but more especially through your son jesus christ god the son emmanuel god with us and i pray father that those who need to take that step and recognize it that your holy spirit would continue just nagging at them dogging at their heels like the great hound of heaven until they finally relent and give in and surrender and say i get it i understand it yes i'm going to accept that the biography is accurate because there are eyewitnesses and that Jesus is God's autobiography for me. I need him. I choose to trust him. I ask him to forgive me. And now I want to walk with him as he guides me, not through just this life, but into eternity, which he promises. And I pray they'll do that. In Jesus' name, amen.